Voki, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Rex Hunt is Australian fishing royalty. Born in 1949, Rex has lived his 70 years to the fullest as a professional football player, popular television personality, and radio icon. In this episode of Anchored, I meet with Rex at his home on the shores of Port Phillip Bay to discuss his life and career, the ups and downs, and his thoughts about getting more people into fishing. Why would I be on your list? <laughs> because you're legendary. <laughs> I don't know about that. It all depends how you look at the term legendary, but I've been fishing quite a long time, made a good living out of it, and I think I was one of the first people who exposed characters in fishing in Australia that just, just wasn't silly old men going around just going fishing. So I'm pretty proud of what I've done. You should be. Yeah. So we're going to spend the next hour just really going through your timeline, if you're okay with that. Absolutely. Let's start with... Where I start, everybody. Where were you born and raised? I was born in a place called Mentone, which is on the eastern seaboard of Port Phillip Bay in metropolitan Melbourne in Victoria, Australia. Uh, Not far from the Mentone Pier. Uh, I was born there in 1949 on the 7th of March. And uh, about seven years later, I caught my first fish, a garfish, off the Mentone Pier, the year that Melbourne had the Olympics in 1956. So... My wife and I and brought up our grandchildren and our children no more than seven miles from where I was born. So, so the fruit doesn't fall far from the tree, does it? No, it doesn't. <laughs> that was your first fish, a garfish? A garfish, yeah, just a, 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 a tiny little garfish of about oh, eight or nine inches and I was fascinated to see you know, them glistening in the sunshine and all the old men trying to catch them and I actually caught one. I used to sell sandworms to the old fellas for floats and rods and that sort of thing and those were the days where you actually sort of had a bit of innovation yeah. and you didn't sit on electronic devices and just wait for the world to stop. Oh, I can't wait to tell you about the new thing I heard about today called drone fishing. Drone fishing. Drones. They use these, like, do you know what a drone is? Yes, I do. They use drones to attach fishing lines to them, and then they fly them out hundreds of yards into the middle of the ocean, all while watching on a screen so that you can see where the fish are, and then drop the bait where they see the fish. Electronics and fishing have met officially, and I don't know how I feel about it. I'll I'll tell you what I feel about it. It's taken (laughs) what fishing is out of it. You know what I mean? I I saw a young boy on on the internet at one of the airline lounges, and he said, oh, I caught a big barramundi rex and that sort of thing. I said, oh, what was it? You know, he said, oh, about a 15-kilo one. I said, what river, the Mary River or the Crocodile Flatten? Oh, no, on the internet. You know what I mean? I just thought if we get to a stage where people are catching fish on the internet, you've got to get kids out and get them into fishing and uh, we in Victoria have a program called the Vic Fish Kids where kids actually go fishing, they get a rod and reel and uh, no electronic devices. Did you fish when you were growing up? Did your parents fish? Oh no, my parents never fished but my mum and dad, they all, mum made the sandwiches and the thermos of coffee and dad just drove me down to a place called Hastings on the banks of Western Port and I used to fish off the local pier and catch toadfish and trout and uh, salmon trout, they were salt water fish and and right throughout my young years uh, particularly uh, pre-teen and then into my teens I was just fascinated by fishing absolutely that's I've really really thought of fishing more than probably 15 hours a day 
Do you think is it still like that? Yeah, it is. Really? Yeah, it is. But I, I'm probably because of my old football injuries and the fact that I'm 70 and I have a bit of arthritis and I've had a couple of operations. I can't do what you do: strap a kid to the side of my belt and go up some <laughs> stream catching a 20-pound salmon. But I just uh, even even today before you came here, I was in my fishing room just uh, reminiscing about some of the wonderful places I've been and also the fish that I've caught. And even yesterday, I was down at Westernport with a dear friend of mine over 40. years years we've known each other and we've got a dozen whiting on the bank and it was just as good as catching a 30 pound barrel Monday. <laughs> when I think about you I really do think about the time of like the good old boys yeah and I know you're all about women and children and fishing so it's not yeah. from a sexist stance I just think of you back at the day where it was like I don't know like the heyday when it before it was all ramped up on the internet and Absolutely, before um, fishing magazines and before radio shows and before television shows, which yeah. I had, you know what I mean? And it was just something special that you look forward to every weekend, you know, it was just magnificent. So how did you get to that point? I got to that point by realising that fishing was more than catching a fish and that I had to work out the tides, I had to work out the bait, I had to make sure that I sharpened my hooks and make sure with the small biting fish like a whiting or a garfish that you had the right sort of tapered rod and all that sort of stuff. And there was always about six or seven kids, you know, to say kids between say nine and 15 years of age who are always, the, the, they were the ones who always caught the fish on the end of the pier yeah. or always caught the mullet and brim in the Mordialli Creek. They were the ones and uh, and I, I see a lot of them around now and they're 70 same as me and uh, and we talk about the good old days that they were good old days but we we actually we actually spoke in those days you know what I mean we spoke to the old people we spoke to the young people but now you know it's uh, it, it seems to me that it's it's just a falling grace uh, in in society is the, is the ability to sort of uh, well correspond or what is it communicate is the word I'm looking for yeah and we'll come back to that Tell mm. me about this football thing, because from what I understand, you were quite the football player, professionally. Well, I was. Uh, I, I, I'm very glad. You know, I'm a life member of the AFL and a 200-game player and a premiership player, and they just don't give them out just for the sake of it. But I, I, I just I just love fishing and also love football. And uh, I followed a team called Collingwood, who a lot of people listening to this wouldn't know who Collingwood is, but they're the most famous football club in Australia. And the thing about it is, I wasn't much good at football. But then when I got to 15 or 16 years of age, I found out one of the greatest things of all is confidence and self-belief. And I grew quite tall and quite bulky and found that I could get the football. And I say to the kids, the most important thing in football is get the football. Yeah. <laughs> and you can either kick it or hand pass it or kick a goal or mark it, that sort of thing. So I uh, was fortunate enough to go to a side called Richmond. I wanted to go to Collingwood, but I lived on the wrong side of the road. My, my other friend, he went to Collingwood and became a star and went to Richmond at the start of their golden era. And uh, I was fortunate enough to play in some of the great games, you know, that you'll probably see now on television in black and white. And then after that, I went, uh, I was a policeman at the time and uh, I was a career policeman. And a couple of things happened to me in the police department, which, you know, I didn't like. I got shot at and I had to, you know, give a death message and all that sort of stuff. It was just, I just thought, I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. I went home and uh, my wife said, you know, this is affecting you. What are you going to do? I said, well... I'd like to do something in fishing and football. She said, gee, oh, well, all right. And the rest is history, that I became a football broadcaster on the radio. I became a fishing uh, broadcaster on the radio. And not long after, uh, in 1982, I had my first uh, television program at 6.30 on a Saturday morning called Angling Action. 
the biggest fishing show, actually. Oh uh, well, I've been told. Well, it was, but but then then we transferred to Rex Hunt's Fishing Adventures, and then we went to worldwide sort of proportions. It was just amazing to be walking down the the, the main street of London, and the London Bobby would say "Yabba Dabba Doogab," yeah. and I said, "Well, it's yibba yibba, you idiot!" But that'll do, <laughs> and it's just quite amazing. And my wife said, "Isn't this just amazing?" But I thought it was amazing for us, and we made a good living, and it was all you know, it was nice being in the limelight. But the thing that I loved about it, April, it was actually put fishing on the map in Australia mm-hmm. and people actually would come to Australia because of the, the promotion. And it's good to see so many fishing programs around now. I know the States has had fishing programs forevermore, but we didn't. So they say I was a pioneer of the fishing program. I was, but I had just a few things go my way. Like what? Like a little bit of luck. By being in the right place at the right time oh. and more importantly, having the guts to have a go. You know, I find so many kids at my, when, when I was a kid, they were scared to have a go. They were scared to make a mistake. But I always worked on the philosophy, if you, you, know, if you don't want to make a mistake, just don't even try doing something because, you know, just try something. And I tried ten things, nine of them wouldn't work, and then all of a sudden I found a bloke at Channel 7 uh, and they end up calling it Channel Rex because it was that popular. Uh, bloke at Channel 7 who uh, loved fishing, put us on, and the rest is history. Okay, so you graduated. Did you graduate high school? No, I didn't get – I had three years in – the best three years of my life at high school were in year nine. I get, couldn't get past year nine. Over and over again? Over and over and over. <laughs> and I just thought, what, how am I ever going to get out of it? And then I left and joined the police department as a 16-year-old police cadet and enjoyed it quite a time until I got into the real bad stuff, you know, by you know, being shot at in car accidents, that sort of thing. And I just said, oh, I don't want to do that for the rest of my life. So if you didn't get into football through school, how did you get into football? Got into football by being a very, very good junior player. And what they have here in Australia is they have people who are scouts and they say, gee, look at that, Uh, he's he's a good mark or he's a good kick and that sort of thing. And then you get invited to be on a supplementary list where you go and train with one of the sides. And I went and trained with Richmond Football Club in 1965 and spent the next 10 years of my life there. AFL is the Australian Football League? Yes. Was the AFL what it is today as far as if you were on it, you were so famous you couldn't walk down, like walk no, through the airport? No, but, well, well, certainly people knew who you were, but it was we, we played in the VFL. The Australian Football League wasn't even thought of. Oh. It was the Victorian Football League. And people came from Perth and Adelaide, and uh, they came from Sydney and Hobart to play in the VFL because that was the Premier League. And then when South Melbourne moved to Sydney, that's when it became the Australian Football League. Okay, so how long did you play professional football for? Uh, For 12 years. Okay, it's a long time. And 202 games, yeah. That's a long lifespan for a football player, isn't Well, it, it is. I think there's, uh, there's, there's just under 600 of us out of 14,000 who have played 200 or more games. So you have to have a lot of things going for you, luck, but you also have injuries and, and, and form and all that sort of stuff. So I was a little bit fortunate in the right place again at the right time. Did football push you out or did you choose to leave and go into fishing? No, uh, I, I retired at 28 because I was, uh, I was, you know, arthritic even then and I'd broken a couple of bones and that sort of thing. But, but I continued on in football on the radio and the television and fishing was just an offside. I can firmly say to you now that had I not been on 3AW and Channel 7 on, uh, on the football broadcast, 
I would never, ever have been on television with my fishing show. You, you needed a bit of an in, you know. Just You've got to have a look at the, the, the people now that they might be on early Saturday morning or late, you know, at night, that sort of thing. We were on at 5.30 uh, right around Australia and, in fact, the world, you know, and it was the only fishing show on, on uh, television in Australia. So we were sort of pioneers, as you say. And I think that this particular stage that it was the thing that gave me my biggest break because if I was just little Rexy Hunt from Parkdale trying to get a fishing show up and I knew people before me had gone there, oh, no, fishing's boring, that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, I said yibbity yibbity and was yelling and it's exciting and that sort of thing. And the big thing about the ratings was that the majority of the audience didn't go fishing. And the big thing about it is, April, is that people introduced... Uh, themselves to fishing from my show and we got involved with Kmart and we sold thousands of rods and reels you know through Shimano with the Rex Hunt Shimano range and it was just an absolute amazing time for recreational fishing in Australia. Yeah so how many years did you do television for? Uh, In Australia I did it for 17 years and internationally for 12 years. Whoa, so, did you do all the productions as yeah, well? I, uh, we owned the production company and we uh, got the right people behind us with the editors and the sound men and the cameramen. So yeah, but my wife and I did the whole lot. Now Rex, you're one of the most controversial people I've ever... Have you ever Googled yourself? Uh, no. Uh, well, <laughs> I've, I've, I've sort of Googled something and something's come up, but controversial. And you know what? I, I, I reckon it's just fantastic because it's, it's, it's boring being boring. <laughs> You're so it? interesting. Can it's, we talk about the airline? I won't talk about any other controversies, but the airline. Well, at the Qantas Club, uh, it's like in America where you have an airline club and you can go in and have a cup of like tea or wine and that sort of thing, a lounge. To go up to the lounge, they got me down to my underpants because apparently uh, I had some steel in my boots or something like that and and, and the, the, the security went off, you know what I mean? Here I am standing in my underpants. And they literally laughing. had you in your underpants? Oh, yeah, and people laughing and carrying on like that. So what I decided to do is to just prove how good that their security was because you'd go into the lounge and you could get a fork and a knife and have a meal. Yeah. And, and, t- and so I took the forks onto the uh, plane and it was one of the dumbest things I've ever done in my life. But <laughs> you regret it? Yeah, oh, I do, but, uh, but, do, but then again I don't because <laughs> they tightened the security and, you know, they, 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 they issued this Qantas Club or the lounge with uh, plastic forks and knives. Oh, no, so you're the downfall. <laughs> That's right. So, wait, so how many forks did you end up stuffing in your pants? Or I've, did you put them in your – like, where did you put in, them? In my pocket, both pockets. So I think about six in one and about five in the other. And somebody complained. Yeah, oh, someone saw me counting them and that sort of thing, and the police were waiting for me at Melbourne and arrested <laughs> me and said, you can't arrest me. I said, why is that? I said, Collingwood are playing Carlton. He said, well, have you out here in a minute, all right? No way. <laughs> Do you think that nowadays people – can get away with that much with it. I mean, it feels like nowadays, if you so much as breathe wrong or say the wrong thing, mm. your whole career is taken away from Politically you. Politically correctness is just a, 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 a just it is silly. Would your people in in the northern hemisphere be familiar with the term Sheila? A Sheila. A Sheila. Yeah. Well, to my mind. When Kevin Sheedy, my best friend at football in 1968 and the 11th of November said, you want to see the Sheila down at the dance? And it was my wife, Lynn. And that was 50 years ago this year. And I listened to the radio yesterday that they're actually taking offence now at someone calling. They're not taking offence at a bloke being called a bloke, but a Sheila. Have you ever been called a Sheila? No, I haven't. So what would you do in the Northern Hemisphere? A chick. A chick. Chick. But you don't take offence at that? It depends on the context. Yeah. Back then, were there a lot of women anglers? No. Why? Uh, 
because it, it was a blokey thing. Smelly old fellas just went away and spoke their rubbish and, uh, and had their beer and got their bags of worms. And my wife used to come with me all the time because, uh, well, she'd bring the lunch and she'd enjoy whiting. And she ended up being a very, very competent fisherman. She won quite a few titles. But, uh, but no, it wasn't a women thing in those times. The, the, the Sheilas <laughs> weren't part of the game, April. Do you think it would have been a better game, though, if they were back then? I think so. What do you think would have been different? I just think uh, we would have been able to get more children into it. We might have been able to sort of uh, get a better lunch out there. on the. <laughs> <laughs> that might be sexist. So, so how, how, how long, uh, how old, you, you were introduced to fishing yourself. How many other ladies were there in fishing? Yeah, so, I mean, I was introduced to fishing early, but mm. I, it, my dad and I didn't go out that much. I mean, yeah. I was mostly taking him out when I was driving. But technically, yeah, I was introduced by my parents when I was like three. And then there weren't very many women fishing. No. Now, like, I'm trying to think of, of being a woman, not a kid. When, yeah. I was, when I was in my teens, there weren't very many. But I often yeah. think about how it would have been different if there were more women fishing. I know it's your podcast, but did, did, did you go fishing because you love fishing or you were fascinated yeah, by it? Yeah, I was obsessed. Well, the water. It was the water yeah. I was actually obsessed with. Yeah. The fish just were a byproduct yeah. of the water, yeah. Wow. And have a look. The rest is history. Yeah, but I don't know if, if having more... See, it's one of those things where having more females... At my age, like when I was 16, 17, I don't know how much of a difference it would have made. Mm. But now as a mum, yeah, I guess having more mums involved, but how do you get them? Yeah, it's like an egg before the chicken before that, the egg sort of situation. Right. But. You know, I know my daughter and her husband, you know, they, they go fishing with their children, that sort of thing, but they're in the business as well. However, I'm fairly confident that if they weren't in the business on the weekends, they'd be going fishing. And there has been an explosion of women and children into fishing. But see, there's also been an explosion of that exact question, is if they weren't in the industry and they weren't making money, would they still be involved? That's yes. a big question people the, are, are faced is. with. Yeah. But I mean, my response, is really who cares mm. as long as the message is positive. Absolutely. But I also then turn around and ask, well, how, how much promotion is too much promotion? Has the fishery changed a lot since you were um, fishing? It, it, it has because there's many fisheries being opened up uh, that were never available. Uh, here in Victoria, which is my home state, April, uh, the, the production artificially of Murray cod, rainbow trout, brown trout, golden perch is just absolutely fantastic. We have the introduced species, you know, like brown and rainbow trout and redfin, uh, which is an English perch. And I just, I just think the amount of people who are fishing now has opened up the whole world uh, to, to what Australia is about. The highest profile fish we've got is the barramundi, mm -hmm. which is just a magnificent fish, you know, that's in the tropics. All it needs is promotion. You know that. You know, it, it, it's, it's, it, it's more than the Mentone Pier. It's more than the Hastings Creek. It's more than this. It's more than the Gunnamatta Surf Beach. Fish are where you find them, and it's just, it's just go fishing. Do you think that it still needs promotion? Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt, because the thing about it is that... that that, that what Victoria needs and what Australia needs is new people to come into fishing. Uh, they need people like Kmart and Coles and that sort of thing to promote fishing, to make it viable, to buy a rod and reel, because sometimes people go fishing once or twice and they'll never go again. What we want is people who go fishing regularly. Do you believe in quality over quantity when it comes to people fishing? 
Oh, uh, the days of, of the thrill and kill are well and truly over and yet I was involved in the thrill and kill in the Australian Anglers Association through the 1960s and 70s when you used to go out and you, if you caught a hundred, hundred whiting, the bloke next door would have to catch a hundred and one. So how stupid was that? Fortunately, bag limits came in then, but certainly quite, you know, I, uh, you know, I've got some, some dear friends of the Victorian Fly Fishing Association, of one which, as you know, is Choco, David Grisold. Yeah. And last week we went to the Goulburn River and we caught three trout in about six hours. But they were between three and seven pound rainbows. And we just thought, how good was that? Had a hamburger on the way home, a cup of coffee at Alexander. It was fantastic. Well, it's funny that you should mention Choco, actually, because when I had spoke at that club, I was really interested in speaking to those old boys at that club about about other species because it felt like there was a real purist mentality with the older generation that trout are the end-all be-all. Is that something that you have witnessed in your... Oh, I've witnessed it. And there's also that unless you catch a trout on a fly, it's not worth catching. Or on a dry fly, then it's really not worth catching. And, you know, I just, I just think the thing about it is that, that what I don't like, and, and I'm controversial over this, but I'm a stickler, is seeing a 10-year-old kid at a gantry with a 200-kilo marlin, and that's his first fish. Now, where's the kid going to go? You know what I mean? I look at it this way. You go down and catch a little trout or a red fin or a flathead and learn how to catch fish with a hand line, that sort of thing. But the old mentality of the VWFA is this, that, as you say, if you don't catch your fish on a dry fire, it's not worth catching. Well, not many of them catch fish. But isn't that strange, though? I mean, being from Australia, trout aren't even indigenous to this country. No, they're not. So where did that come from? Oh, it came the from... The English? Oh, yeah, it came from the, the, the stuffy old tie, you know, and the private school and that sort of thing, and the men's club that, oh, yes, old boy, you've got to catch the brown trout and you've got to take a, a fly, you know what I mean? Did your show help to break a lot of that? Without a doubt. It broke down the barriers, and, and I think that a lot of the people who are my age now are handing that down to their children and their grandchildren. I'm really, really proud of that. And what I promoted on my, uh, my show is that fishing breaks down the barriers of communication where people might sit beside you on a railway station or you might walk past them and you wouldn't even acknowledge. But if you had a fishing rod, you talk to them. And it's as simple as that. Yeah, you can be from different walks of life and well, still you can. communicate. You can. I, uh, as, as a young policeman, I was fly fishing at uh, the Goulburn River at Thornton using a, a white moth and just learning how to, how to dry fly fish and getting the drag right and that sort of thing. And there's a guy w- watching me. I said, how are you, mate? He said, oh, good day, mate. You're doing all right? I said, yeah, and we became very, very good friends. His name was Bob Gibb. Over an amount of uh, months, uh, he... I'd meet him up there and he'd show me how to cast and he'd do this and do that. And then in the summer of 1972, I was a detective in the company Fraud Squad and I went into the Supreme Court to give evidence against a person who had embezzled millions of dollars and I looked up and the judge was Bob Gibb. He's (gasps) looked at me like that and he's gone like that. He gave you a wink. Gave me a wink, and there it is. And, and that, was, that was the only time that he acknowledged the fact that, he, that he, he knew me. And then in a few weeks' time, we met again, and he said, well, 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 now you know who I am. I said, well, has that changed anything? He said, no. He said, nothing at all. But he knew who you were, obviously, because you were He knew exactly who I was, yeah. Oh, you just but never know. Isn't that just fantastic? Okay, so let me get, just get back on your timeline, because I got... some more of the controversial 
you sure? What am I? <laughs> Where do you want to start? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, so you're on Wikipedia, and there's a whole section of controversy under your tab. <laughs> um, is there anything that you wanted to clear the air with? No, the thing about it is that uh, I realise that you can't have your time over again, and all you do is you learn by your mistakes and you move on. Would you change anything besides cu- not smuggling cutlery in your pants, even oh, though that's amazing? Oh, oh, yeah, of course I would, but I can't. I can't change that. And uh, the thing about it is I can make myself a better person towards the end of my life. I'm 70 years of age, for God's sake, young lady. (laughs) Have a look at you. You've got their life ahead of you. You know what I mean? I can just see your daughter carrying her daughter up the Maribyrnong River for Rex's secret spot. (laughs) I'm I'm afraid for her. But you know what? I think if we just keep at it and just teach her to stay true to herself. That's it. That's it. Um, I'm just trying to think of what else to ask you on that. I don't particularly want to talk to you about women on the show. Did you do anything to ruin your career? Was your career pretty strong all the way through? Uh, yes, it was, <clears throat> but it was tough at the, at the start because I kissed fish and said yibbity yibbity. Oh, yeah, that's right. And you did. The thing about did you get it, grief for that? Oh, yeah, real grief. You know what I mean? You know, I even get it now. You, know, you should have stuck to kissing fish instead of women and all this sort of stuff. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's... Yeah. And that's okay. You know, you have a bit of a laugh. <laughs> but but uh, the thing about it is, is that I dared to be different. And for those people listening out there, there might be one or two people listening to this podcast who'll get the message. You've got to dare to be different. To not take a risk is the greatest risk of all. And I look at it this way, that fishing, to my mind, a few shows, uh, even back then, like uh, very boring to people who are non-fishing people. I can sit down and watch them and enjoy it. But I, you know, I can see my wife say, oh, turn it over, that sort of thing. But I came out and said, yibbity yibbity and kiss the fish and that sort of thing. The reason why I kissed the fish was because the greenies were circling, trying to make fishing, you know, ban fishing for its cruelty because they want to say uh, fish feel pain and all this sort of stuff. Apparently sort of noose, I just found this out last week because somebody asked me to provide a quote for a magazine and I, I politely declined until I've had time to actually read the research. Mm. But apparently as of recent, there have been new studies showing that fish do feel pain. Do they really? I don't. I haven't read the study yet. I, yeah. I, I've been putting it off, but I, I will. Like, I will it read hurts, it. it to my mind, yesterday, even with the whiting, when the whiting was hooked, they kept on fighting like that. And if it hurt, they, why wouldn't you? You know, why wouldn't you? But anyhow, that's a controversial thing. But I knew the greenies were waiting for us, and they say we've finally got a bloke of a high profile that we can take on. And I kissed the fish. The first show it was a rainbow trout. It was in front of my black Labrador at Eildon. And uh, never had a problem in 17 years with cruelty to fish and that sort of thing because we kissed the fish and put it back. And one thing that I can say, there is no doubt that that show had an influence on people putting fish back and only taking those fish that they want for their immediate needs because that, that was a big thing for me, people just throwing fish into a bucket, letting them gasp and that sort of thing. And if you want to uh, uh, eat the fish, knock it on the head, put it in the side, catch another one, that's enough. But that's the big thing about it is it was catch and release and that's, that's what we did. So are you still all for catch and release? Yes, I am. It's an interesting debate right now. It's, it's, it gets people really riled up. And mm. I understand, you know, yeah. the question is why catch and release? Why not just take your fish and go home, stop mm. fishing? What yeah. are your thoughts on that? Well, because out here in Port Phillip Bay in the middle of uh, the snapper season, the bag limit is uh, three fish over 40 centimetres and you can have another seven fish over 30 fish. So you've got 10 fish. 
if they're going in 20 minutes, April, you and I could have 20 fish and that's our bag limit. We've gone out in the middle of the bay and we're going home. But is so, that a bad thing? Uh, well, I don't suppose so, but people don't want to do it. So it's, it's always going to be controversial. But, but hopefully, mainly, people don't get their bag limit and it's only a sort of a guide, you know what I mean? It's just, uh, it's, uh, that's enough. And I hear bag limits are a little bit excessive in certain parts they of are. this country. They are, yeah. So are you still getting out and fishing nowadays? Yesterday I fished at Hastings in Western Port. My friend and I caught a dozen King George Whiting. They're out the back in a slurry at the moment. We're going to have some for dinner tonight, Lynn and I. And the week before, Lynn and I got uh, 20 whiting down at Mud Island. So, yeah, I still get out. And the week before that, Choco and I got those three nice uh, rainbow trout. It's just your energy is just surging. I mean, it's like yeah. smacked me in the face. I sat down <laughs> to be like, tell me about your upbringing. Were your parents divorced? And it was just like, whoa, here we go. We're off yeah. to the races. I mean, your energy is unstoppable. Well, it is. And I want to inspire the next generation that just because you're not top of the class doesn't mean you can't buy the school. When I was a kid at school, I just saw uh, a thing that I'm taking with me today is that I saw so many people who were good at school and they were good at uh, football, they were good at cricket, they were good at hockey, uh, they were good at mathematics and they were good at English. But the thing about it is when I went to a reunion a few months ago, a majority of those people had done nothing with that particular, you know, skill and yet Myself, who had three goes at year nine, you know, somebody said, oh, it's all right for you. You were lucky. And I said, yeah, I suppose I was lucky. But the thing about it is what I like to say to the people listening here now is particularly if you're a young person, is find something you love doing and get someone to pay you to do it. You know what I mean? At this particular stage, if I was trying to – if I said to a young kid who was a guru of the internet and that sort of thing, knock on the doors around your neighbourhood – and say, listen, my name's Tim, I'm 16 years of age. Have you got any problems with your internet or your remote television control or your Facebook? Here's my card, I can come round. I'd have the kid here tomorrow because I'm always sort of ringing up my daughter asking how to do this and do that because I don't know. You say you don't know, well, how do you reckon I feel? You know what I mean? And uh, I've had to sort of learn how to get onto the internet and do emails and that, you know, up to 10 years ago. But, but... Young kids can go to old people and make it easier for them. A lot of young people nowadays are afraid of being told no, and they're afraid of criticism. Yeah. Were you, did you find your generation, or were you in particular afraid of criticism when you were younger? I was very, very sensitive about criticism. Yeah. uh, Even even constructive criticism. But in my days, you know, you stood in the corner of the uh, classroom with a dunce's hat on. Criticism can destroy someone's uh, belief. And the thing about it is you've got to be able to sort of uh, be a little bit tougher and uh, just to have a little bit of a thicker hide to be able to take that and realise that everyone can't like you and that, you know, if I took notice of what everyone writes, that as long as they're right and they're talking about me, I don't care. Is that how you viewed it when you were in the prime of your career because do you believe now that if you if the internet existed like it does today where people can just leave these horrible comments on a photo do you think that you would have been so enthusiastic no no I wouldn't and I'm glad that we didn't have it back then but I just I've got the perfect answer for those and that's just silence you just don't even don't even acknowledge them. Yeah, it's you know? looking like that's more. I mean, when the internet first came out, we didn't know how to handle it. No, you know, do you respond and show that you're strong? Yeah. Do you not? But nowadays, with do you know what it's called now? It's called trolling. People troll. Yeah. 
It's amazing because it sounds like it's fishing related. My son's trolling today for That's the right. yellowfin tuna, yeah. So people will troll your comments trying to get you to respond and so you really? just, just don't respond. It's just no. like fishing. No. So are you still working? Uh, when I say still working, I still have a radio program on a Friday and a Saturday night after the football. Yeah. I, I get on the Facebook and respond to a few of it, but I just do enough work to, to just, you know, I just don't think, April, that I could not do anything. Yeah, what are you going to do? Yeah, ab- absolutely. I, um, I, and it's a, it's a very, very sensitive subject. For the last 12 months, I've been battling uh, depression. I've been uh, diagnosed bipolar depression, of which my wife's had bipolar for 38 years. But it was just pain from my neck surgery and pain from my back surgery and prescription pills actually depressed me and uh, I, I'm recovering now well under some medication and some, some very, very good sort of medical help. But I had no idea at 69 years of age how lonely that dark uh, place could be. Was it because you were in pain? Uh, it, was be- it was because I was in so much pain and I couldn't get any relief. And I had six general anaesthetics in seven weeks. And if you Google general anaesthetics in seven weeks, that's uh, almost, you know, just just suicidal. So it's just, yeah. And fortunately, I'm, I'm on the other side of it, but I've spent uh, three different occasions in institutions and it's a very, very lonely place to see the people there, particularly who can't get any any relief. It's just amazing. I think what, what's happened now is that fortunately over the last 10 years, the stigma of mental health is starting to, to, to go off, you know, you know, oh, they're loony and all that sort of stuff. And, and all I can say in the greatest of honesty is, is that you don't have any idea until you're in the bottom of that hole. So, I mean, being totally honest here then, did fishing help at all or was it just useless? Oh, yeah, no, fishing, fishing did help. It did. Uh, not so much the fishing but looking forward to going fishing, you know, where I'd, where I'd say, Choco, I'd ring and say, what do you think about tomorrow? i say, no, I'm not right, but what about tomorrow? And, and to, I find that, that you must have things to look forward to. And it can be a very, very lonely life when you've been like me in the headlines, not only in Australia, but over the world, when you've been there for so many years and all of a sudden you've got nothing to do. Yeah. I don't know how to ask you that, but yeah. I was wondering. Yeah. Because the, 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 all worst the, thing you're... the worst thing you can do is to do nothing. Yeah. What do you do? I mean, do you crave attention? No, absolutely not now. I, I cut my hair off and just get rid of my beard and that sort of thing. I just love walking into the supermarket and people not knowing me. Because for so long, we, we had the Rex Hunt fishing show here for 15 years in Melbourne where we used to get 80,000 people on the weekend to come along. And it was just amazing. And the, and the whole industry was there. But, but you couldn't go anywhere. You know what I mean? You'd be signing autographs or getting photos, that sort of thing. So certainly not craving attention, but probably the opposite, you know, craving anonymity. It, was, it wasn't interesting. It was uh, very, very frightening and it's amazing to come out the other side and I tend to use what time I've got left to inspire people that it's not the end, that you can actually get, get through it because a lot of it is a very, very lonely place. Is depression associated with age? I just wonder if a lot of the older people I meet who seem like they're down, if it is depression. I reckon you might be on something there. But the thing about it is if you, if you, you read the internet, it says you know, that you can get it at any stage of your life, but it's mainly through your late teens and into your 20s and that That's sort of thing. That's what I thought, yeah. But all of a sudden, you know, I, I for 38 years have looked after Lynn with bipolar depression, uh, her brother, who unfortunately 
unfortunately took his own life. Uh, he suffered with it. And I thought I knew what bipolar depression was until I was actually diagnosed with it. And uh, at 68 years of age. So, so just amazing. Absolutely amazing. I run into a lot of people, I mean, full discretion, I run into a lot of people in fishing who are depressed. Really? Yeah, and I just never know, because I'm not depressed, and my best friend suffers from extreme depression. She was actually on the show, we did a whole episode. For those yeah. of you who have listened to Adrian Camo's episode, we spoke about it, but I don't understand it, mm. and I always wonder if it's people in the outdoors that have it and that's why they they turn to the outdoors or if there's just a massive population of people out there who yeah. suffer with it. I think there's a massive population of people out there who suffer because they suffer in silence. And I think it's something that's really got to be promoted. The fact is, hey, there's help here and reach out for people. Your, your friend, uh, had she, uh, she had a baby like when you had Adelaide? Or she, no. Because, you see, my wife uh, used to call it... Uh, Postnatal depression, yeah, and uh, and then she was diagnosed as, as bipolar depression. So yeah, but but I th- I think there's there's millions of people worldwide, uh, whether they're young or they're old, who suffer from depression. So let me ask you this, and I'm just going to try to walk through a day of understanding this. You wake up, you're tired. Yes, I am. I'm anxious. Oh, and anxious. Okay, yes. and it's probably hard to get yourself to go say to the river. It is. But then when you're there, is it the feeling of the air, wind on your face? Is it the, the feel of the sun on your face? Is it the smells? Is it the sounds? Is it the fishing? Is it the camaraderie? Does it even matter? All of those things. The thing about it is when I wake up, say for instance this morning, I knew that you were coming this afternoon, we were going to do that. I had a couple of things also to do, to, uh, answer, some, answer some emails this morning. So at half past seven, I get out of bed. I didn't want to get out of bed this morning. But I can say for those people out there, if you get out of bed, you have 50% taken care of your problem for the day. The best thing about it is you will feel 50% better. Don't feel 100% now, but the thing about it is I haven't gone to sleep in the afternoon for probably 10 months or something like that. But then if I, if I say, oh, Choco, we'll meet at, uh, at Yarra Glen and we'll go up to, to Ed's place on the Goulburn, and when I'm driving to Yarra Glen, I then get this wonderful feeling of expectation. I think that you must have things that you look forward to. If you look forward to things, you know, whether it be go bowling or you're going shopping or you're going down the art gallery or you go for a walk with your dog along the beach, the biggest thing about it is, number one, get out of bed, you'll feel 50% better. And number two, look forward to the day's activities. Because once you start to malinger and once you start to sort of say, oh, what am I going to do today? You know, I'm bored to the shies and hours and all this sort of stuff. You're in all sorts of trouble. Because depressions, the, the, the greatest food for depression is sitting around doing nothing. Boredom. Absolute boredom. So I wonder if it's purpose. I guess, and I'm, I'm, I'm asking this because I often question if people get depressed because we live in conditions that are so unnatural to what humans are supposed to or used to live in. And I just question if people were outside more, if there would be less depression. But I can't put my finger on it because, like I said, I can't tell if the people who are outside and are depressed are there because they're depressed. Yeah. I think uh, I think just, just probably trying to work out how I would uh, answer that is that if people are outside or they're fishing or they're flying a kite or they're walking along the beach – 
and they're, they're depressed, they have made the decision that today I will do something. You know what I mean? Or today I'll take my wife for lunch or today I'll go down to the, to the horse with my wife and I'll watch her ride and all that sort of stuff. I, I, I think it's, it gets back to 7 or 8 o'clock in the morning when you make the decision to do something for the day and if you make the decision to, to put the curtains uh, across and don't get out of bed, you're just playing right in the hands of this insipid disease. And the thing about it is that I just, you know, I'm going to not so much go public, but I will on my own radio show when I, when I get the opportunity talk about my experience. Because I felt that by reading or by watching things on television, people at my age, you can say, that happened to me. You know what I mean? I, I didn't want to get out of bed and then I got out of bed and I felt 50% better, all that sort of stuff. So I think, you know, I'm, I'm going to use my experience. I'm going to use my ability to be on the electronic medium called radio and I'm going to help people because the biggest thing about it all is if someone's been there before you, you know, and that's, uh, that, 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 that's, that's, that's my thinking. Yeah, I think you should. I think you absolutely yeah. should. I think there are probably more people out there who have depression than we real. I mean, no, I no know doubt. there are more no people. Doubt. Yeah. No doubt. Well, I'm excited that you're not going anywhere. Yeah. Well, let's hope not. <laughs> All right, knock on wood. Um, it's been a bit of a whirlwind. Is there anything that you wanted to talk about that I've missed? In, I mean, I've missed 70 years worth of stuff to talk about, <laughs> but is there anything in your timeline or any uh, particular moment or subject you wanted to talk about? No, the, the only thing I want to talk about is that, you know, earlier I said just, just because you're bottom of the class doesn't mean you can't buy the school. And I went back to that reunion the other day and I just saw all of these goody-goodies who were top of the class, the best high jumpers, absolutely have done nothing telling me how lucky I am. And I think uh, there's a lot of your listeners in the Northern Hemisphere could probably relate to Theodore Roosevelt. And he said this, and it might be a, a reasonable way to finish. He said, far better it is to dare mighty and impossible things, even checkered by failure, than to take rank with those poor souls that neither enjoy nor suffer much. Theirs is the great twilight known as mediocrity. Have a go and damn the consequences. And that was Rex James Hunt, born 7349 at Parkdale on the shores of Port Phillip Bay. <laughs> I'm going to wrap it up as that. Thank, Absolute, thank you so much, Rex. Absolutely lovely, April, and uh, all the best to the listeners. <laughs> thank you. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to support the show, please feel free to leave a review on iTunes or whatever listening platform you use. Thank you.